Let's see here. Ephesians chapter 5. If you remember with me, we were talking about relationships. And one of the ways that relationships affect us is just by the fact that when we worship the Lord, when we come into a relationship with Him, that's where the kingdom of God unites itself with who we are. And that all begins with a relationship with Jesus. And the beauty of that is that once that relationship is right, once we have peace with God, then as a result of that, we should have peace with others. Now, we know from practical everyday life that that doesn't just happen magically. Peace with God does not equate peace with others unless there's a willing participant, and that's you and I. And so uh, the peace of God that surpasses understanding is one thing that Paul had us pray for, but peace with others is something we have to pray for and be willing to work for. Um, and actually, in, um, in James chapter 4, I believe it says that, that peace uh, is sown by those who make peace. Let me find it and properly quote it. The fruit of the righteous, excuse me, uh, James chapter 3 verse 18 says, Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So when we have peace with God, we will naturally be peacemakers. Um, so I, why do I say all of this other than because in chapter 5, Paul's been primarily talking about relationships. And I don't know about you guys, but as I read this chapter and as I kind of try to let it soak into me, I realize that everything I do revolves around relationships. Um, just this morning, as I was reading this, I was reminded of in Genesis. Last week, I completely flubbed. I missed my, my uh, cue there in Genesis chapter 3. And, and the verses I was looking for as we were talking about marriage was the wife's desire to rule over her husband. And um, while I was also talking about the, the man's inability typically to love his wife properly, but if you remember, we were talking about how uh, the woman is to submit to her husband in the Lord. And of course, I kind of commented on the fact that many times uh, this is the only verse in the Bible that men will memorize, people that know the Lord and people that don't. Um, but what it says there in Genesis is that after the fall where they ate the fruit, God spoke to them and he approached them. And of course, they were hiding. They were ashamed. They all of a sudden knew that they had done something wrong. And the Lord God called to Adam, Genesis 3, verse 9, and he said, where are you? Now, God knew where he was, but he was calling Adam to come out of his hiding. Adam had never hid from him before. So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, Lord, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. And he said, well, how did you know you were naked? Who told you that? And, and then the man said, the woman whom you gave to me, <laughs> blame shifting, look at that. He said, um... The woman that you gave to me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. Now, Adam was told specifically by the Lord, do not eat of this one tree. That was like the one commandment he was given. It didn't get any simpler than that. And God knows that. Men, uh, we can usually do one thing good at one time. But the beauty is, is that, or, or the, I guess the, the, the bummer is, that one command he couldn't follow. And so... Um, <laughs> The woman whom you gave to me is what he said. He's blaming the woman, but really he's blaming God. If you didn't give me this co-responder, this blessing that I was so excited about, um, then I wouldn't have fallen. But then the man said, uh, excuse me, and, and the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? 
So he's giving a direct account for each person involved, but notice that he starts with the man who is supposed to be the head of the household. He says, what have you done, Adam? And then he talks to her as well and says, well, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So she blames somebody else too. Everybody's blaming everyone else. Nobody's owning up to their own mistake. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, the word means war, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. So there's already, right after the fall, part of the curse is also a blessing to man. It's a curse against the serpent. It's a blessing to man because God's going to make this right. He's going to send the seed of the woman, who we know to be the fulfillment of this virgin birth, this Son of God, Jesus Christ, to essentially deal with this war between the serpent and the woman and between your seed and her seed. This seed will bruise the head of the serpent, but at the same time, notice, you shall, speaking of the serpent, bruise his heel. He's going to put you under his foot, but not without being harmed himself. He's going to be affected by this. It's going to cost him. So, To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. So, uh, you know, when when your wife looked at you while she was having her child and said, you're never touching me again, you know, it wasn't really your fault. It was, I mean, it was the whole fall thing. So we all own part of that. But then in pain, you shall bring forth children and your desire, he says, shall be for your husband. This isn't like, ooh, I want my husband. This is like, I want to be over him. I want to rule over him. And so part of the fall is that, ladies, you're going to want to rule over your spouse. But he says this, and he shall rule over you. So his position will be to rule. That's not the idea of a monarch that says, do what I tell you. That's the idea of he shall be your head. He shall be in direction. He shall be responsible for you. And so then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So... Why do I go over this? Well, number one, because I missed the reference last week. Apparently, I just skipped over the verses I was trying to get to. But number two, because broken fellowship with God started with a broken relationship and proper communication. Isn't that crazy? Just one relationship with misunderstanding and disobedience and unwillingness from Adam and Eve to submit to the command of God caused this fall that we are now a part of. You can't even garden without seeing results of the fall where the weeds grow up even though you pull them every time they grow. You can't see anything in this life without seeing the results of the fall. So relationships matter to God. Now, as a guy, many times relationships don't matter to me. But that's not okay because God sees relationships as a way that we worship Him through obedience. And that's why I called today's uh, message Relationships as Worship. 
We think of worship and we think of a Sunday morning or we think of driving in the car and singing songs. And that can be worship. Now, there are lots of people that sing songs about God that are not worshiping Him. Because worship comes from where? It comes from the heart. It comes from the center of our will. But worship is not something that's confined to church. Worship is not something that's confined to a Bible study. Worship is in every area of our life we can worship God. And so because of that, Paul writes here in Ephesians about worship. That's what he's primarily talking about in chapter 5. He says in verse 1 of chapter 5, he says, he says, Obey, he says, therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ has also and given him, uh, has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. How did Jesus, Jesus worship the Lord? He worshiped the Lord by giving himself as a sacrifice in obedience and by loving us. And because he did those two things, he was made an offering and a sacrifice to God that was a sweet-smelling aroma. Again, they would not worship by giving the fruits of their lips. They would give animals, they would give the first fruits of their fields, and they would burn them on the altar, and the, the aroma going up to the Lord was their worship. We don't have to do that anymore. But does that mean that worship ceases in our daily, everyday actions, physical actions and relationships? No. So he says, therefore be imitators of God and walk in love. Then down in verse 8 of chapter 5, he, sa- uh, yeah, he says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Now walk as children of light. You will reflect the person you're following. Then he says in verse 15, See then that you walk circumspectly or wisely or um, carefully and exactly, not as fools, but as wise. And then he says in verse 17, do not be unwise, but know what the will of the Lord is. And then he says in verse 20, give thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So all of these things, if you read down through them, if I were to read them to you again, they're all things that Jesus did. See, the thing I love about Jesus is that though Philippians chapter 2 says, though he was the very person of God in human flesh, yet he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, and yet he gave up his position in heaven, he humbled himself, he took on the form of a bond slave, a free will servant, and he served you and I. So if that's the case... If Jesus, in being obedient to his Father, even a part of the triune Godhead, equal with God and yet willing to be subservient to him in the Godhead, then in the same way that we ought to be willing to be submissive to the Lord in our relationships, in our jobs and how we work, in our family life. And that's what he's talking about. So he says in... um, I lost it. He says in verse 21, he says this, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Why should I submit to my husband? Because you fear God. You obey him. You reverence him. You respect him. You, and, and in the same way, husbands, why am I to love my wife as Christ loves the church? Because I fear God. I want to obey his commandments. Jesus said, why do you say you love me and yet you do not do my commandments? You call me Lord and yet you don't serve me as I am your Lord. 
And so there shouldn't be this hypocrisy going on. And so he gives specific instruction, but the main theme is submitting to one another in the fear of God. And so he said to wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And in every one of these relationships, he says, in the Lord, meaning if the person you're supposed to submit to or put yourself under their authority willingly calls you to do something that is sinful, then you don't have to submit to them in that way. That doesn't mean you have to disrespect them, but that means that you need to, you don't have to do that thing. Verse 25, he says to husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. And then in verse 28, I want to highlight this. He said, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. I want you to notice that in this passage, in verse 22, we get the one time he says to wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And then verse 25 and 28, he says twice to husbands, love your wives. The Bible repeats things for emphasis. The Holy Spirit knows when we need to have things re-emphasized. And then he says in verse 33, nevertheless, let each one of you in particular, and he kind of re-emphasizes to both of them, so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So that's marriage, and we went over that last week, and if you want more in-depth discussion on that, you can see it on the website. But this week, we're going to talk about two other relationships, the relationship between children and parents, and the relationship between masters and bond slaves. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I don't know anybody that's a bond slave. They don't call themselves bond servants. I've never heard anybody use the term other than in the Bible. I also don't know anybody that has a master as if they are a slave. But what I do know is that I know people that work for their bosses. And so maybe that's our modern day equivalent. But before we get there, chapter 6 verse 1 says this, children, obey your parents in the Lord. There's that phrase again. For this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment and promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. So we have two different people that are being spoken to. We have the child and we have the parent. Now, what specific parent does it talk to? It talks to the father. And so father's ears should be perking up. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. And I can already sense some of you wanting to nudge your children, right? <laughs> but the, the command here, I love this, is to the children, it's a very simple one. From the time that you're born until the time that you leave the nest, and really, till the time that your parents die, your calling is to obey your parents in the Lord. Now, there's a different responsibility when you leave the house, right? You can't, uh, you, you know, when it comes to you leaving the home and cleaving from your parents and being joined together as one flesh with your wife, uh, there's a new submission. There's a new set, set of authority. Now you're the head of your own household. But that does not mean that we can't honor our father and mother after that point. We live in a society where it's now normal to basically when you leave the house, you just forget about your parents. Heck with them. I'm going to get married to so-and-so and I don't care what anybody thinks. You know, that kind of thing. And I was in that camp, so I'm preaching to the choir here. But my, my, my point is, is that we can obey our parents because the Lord has called us to. Again, he doesn't say obey your parents in the Lord 
because they're watching. He doesn't say obey your parents or honor them because they deserve it. None of these things, the husbands to the wives, the wives to the husbands, it's not anything to do with the other person deserving it. No person deserves to be respected, loved, or any of those things because we're all sinful. You don't deserve anything. Jesus loving you, you didn't deserve that. Isn't that crazy? And he did it anyway. So my point is, is God has a set order for things. In the garden, he set it up for the husband and the wife. And from that point on, there was still that marriage relationship. But that submission had nothing to do with one person being inferior to the other. It just had to do with God's design. It's just like the design that we understand as citizens that if we pull up to a stop sign, that we're to stop. Now, many people don't, right? The ones with the line around them. I don't have to stop on those, right? <laughs> That's what I used to do. I only, st- I, I only stop at the ones without the line around them. You know, <laughs> then you start looking and they all have the line around them. You're like, wait a minute, what? But my point is, is there are laws and there are rules and they have purpose. And in the same way, marriage... And the way that children are raised, it's all part of God's design. And so he has instructions for us on how we're to handle those relationships so that there will be unity in our homes. I don't know about you guys, but if I ever met someone that was a Christian that wanted to show me uh, how, hey, you need to know Jesus. And then you look at their lives and their whole family life screwed up. You're like, hey, I already got that. You know, I, I don't know that you got anything to offer me I don't already have. Just like the person that weighs 400 pounds, and then he's going to show you his new exercise program on how to lose weight. You're going, wait a minute. <laughs> I don't know that I want to go to you if, if you don't actually live by what you say your workout program does. And, and in the same way, God came to the world to reconcile us to him. Do you know what reconciliation is? That's bringing two parties that are separated together and taking down that wall of separation, the, the beef they had, the thing they said last Christmas at, at dinner or whatever it was that caused that division, he dealt with our sin. And because of that, we were brought near again to our creator. And so if that is the case, that's what the gospel is, then that ought to affect our relationships with other people. And, and Paul never said, hey, you got to get along with everybody and you just got to just bend to their will. What he said was, as much as depends upon you, live peaceably amongst others. And that can be more difficult sometimes than others. So, he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. I wrote a little note here, and I was reading Warren Wearsby. He's a, a guy that does a, the whole, uh, he does a series of commentaries for the entire Bible. He said this, he said, the modern version of Ephesians 6.1 would be, parents, obey your children, for this will keep them happy and bring peace to the home. Right? And a lot of parents scoff at that. But I wonder how many parents actually do that. I've, I'm guilty. You know, my kid's screaming. Ah, 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 ah. Sometimes I'm just like, you know what? Okay, you can have that. It's not really that big of a deal. Now, there are times where that does them a disservice, and there are times where it doesn't. You have to pray through those things. But I think in a lot of ways, we as parents are responsible for this generation that we kind of hack on and go, I can't believe kids are the way they are these days. Uh, We're the problem, parents. 
And I say that as a general term. I know that in each one of our homes, we have different ways that we've set up to raise our children. And, and many of us have great ways that we raise our children. I actually uh, enjoy watching you guys raise your kids because then I, I learn things. I glean things along the way. Sometimes you'll give me instruction and I'll be like, I've never thought of that before. But the reality is, is that we also as parents need to be careful. We probably have blind spots. But that being said, we're not, we're not talking about parents right now. We're talking about you kids. So children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is the right thing to do. It's right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment and with a promise. So it's the first commandment with a promise. Well, if you look in Exodus chapter 20 in your free time, now you guys are big on reading the Ten Commandments every day because you've you know, you got to make sure you keep those. In Exodus chapter 20, it's actually a commandment. Children, obey your parents. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Here's the promise, that it may be will with you, and you may live long on the earth. Now, in the commandment in Exodus 20, what he says is that you may live long in the land. He's talking about the land of promise that they were getting ready to go into as they left Egypt and they crossed the, the Red Sea and then they crossed the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. This was the law that he gave them. When you're in the land, you're going to be different than all the other nations. Children, we're going to start with you. Obey your parents. Honor your parents. And now we can honor our parents in lots of different ways, right? We can honor them by obeying what they tell us to do when we're being raised in their home. We can also honor them by taking care of them when they get down the road and they're, they got dementia or they, you know, all the things that can happen is, as our bodies break down and we get older, we can honor our parents by the way that we live. We can honor our parents by the way that we talk to them, especially in front of our children. We can honor our parents by helping them out when they're financially in need. You know, uh, the Pharisees, the most religious people in Jesus' day, they did not honor their parents, and they used the commandment of God to do so. There was a provision that basically when you, uh, say your parents came to you and like, hey, we're kind of in a tough way, um, Medicare type whatever is not taking care of us, we're financially in a strain, we need some help. The most religious people of the day were saying, ah, you know, I, I would give you this money, but it's, it's Corbin, which was a word that meant I've already dedicated it to the Lord, so now I can't help you with it. They were saying, I can't worship the Lord in my relationship with you because I worship the Lord by having this stuff that I've dedicated to the Lord. Well, if you're really dedicated to following the Lord, you're going to honor your parents. This is one of the first commandments. It's in the top ten. And so, you know, sometimes, and as I read this this week, I was really convicted because I don't know that I have honored my father and my mother since I've left the house. And so God's called me to a new step in that. And for you, maybe there's some things that you're convicted about in your relationship with your parents. That's between you and the Lord. Ask Him how He wants you to change. He might want to breathe some fresh life into a stale relationship. And the beauty of that is, is maybe He's going to bring you guys past some of the stuff you've had from your past. He's going to grow you. And then, if you've got unbelieving parents, perhaps they'll see Jesus in the way that you've repented of that particular blind spot you have. So then He says, You fathers... Do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the tra training and the admonition of the Lord. Now, he says this to fathers because fathers can have a tendency to be a little bit heavy-handed. Uh, we, we're not so much on the whole feelings thing. So, I know I hurt your feelings, but you did wrong. So, there. You know, and, and that's our tendency. And it's a good balance with moms that are not all this way, but can be kind of 
hey, you know, they didn't really mean it, and they'll give them the benefit of the doubt. And so there's a good balance because there does need to be discipline, but there also needs to be nurture. Nurture is just as important. You know, discipline is an important thing. A lot of kids nowadays, and, and I think adults too, if you ever call them on something that they've done wrong that they're not willing to admit, many times they'll say, why would you call me out on that? You don't really love me. You don't really care about me. But what I love is that Scripture actually says in Hebrews, um, let's see, Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about the nurture and the discipline of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. He says, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. He says, You've not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. And he's quoting from the Old Testament. He says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. That word is discipline. Uh, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. That's like, uh, you're wrong, you need to change. He said, don't be discouraged. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens or disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. And the writer of Hebrews goes on to expound on this. He says, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with his sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? He says, but if you are with out chastening of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and you're probably not sons. So if you're here today and you say, I follow Jesus and I've never been chastened by the Lord, I don't feel like he's ever corrected me in some way, then you're probably not his kid. Because God loves us enough to discipline and nurture us. Now, he doesn't discipline us to the point that we're exasperated. Some of your translations might say in Ephesians. Exasperation is when you discipline so much that the kid's just weary and doesn't even trust you anymore. But I love when the Lord shows me through my daughter when I've over-disciplined and when I've done it properly. Because when I discipline my daughter correctly, and the first time I did this, it scared me to death because I love my daughter. And I love that she responds to me and she smiles and lights up when she sees me. And I love the hugs and all the stuff that goes along with having a daughter. But I, I didn't want that to change. But the thing is, is I'm not my daughter's friend. I'm her parent. And I'm called to a specific standard that God has given me. And if I disobey his standard, I'm sinning. And so, okay, I'm, I'm going to be obedient, Lord. I'm going to discipline my, my daughter. And the beauty of it is when I did it properly, after I spanked her, because I think the tuchus is a little bit, you know, it's got the soft stuff on it so that it, they could take it. She got a little spanking, and she cried, and she bawled, and, and I let her sit there and think about it. And, and the beauty is, is, at the end, she wanted a hug from me. She wanted reassured that I still loved her, that everything was okay. And it was okay. I just loved her so much, I didn't want her to continue doing this thing that could harm her. And so the Lord is the same way with us. He disciplines us. He says, so fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. Don't make them angry but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Admonition is a big word that I don't use all the time. Heck, I don't use it ever. It, and it means to nurture and discipline, to instruct and encourage. Sometimes, especially as men, our discipline can actually be more of a discouragement than an in encouragement. Uh, discouragement basically says, don't do all that. 
But I think there needs to be the balance of this is what you should be doing. And, and when we do that properly, there's not only, hey, stop that, but there's the encouragement, here's what you should be doing. And then fathers, when they do it, use your words and encourage them. Good job. You know, so many of us will, will encourage our kids when they're doing something, whether it's a sport, whether they got good grades, but when they simply obey you, encourage them. Good job. That's exactly what I wanted you to do. Because I was raised, the, the way was basically, you did what you were supposed to do. Good, I mean, there's no good job. That's what you're supposed to do. But there needs to be that positive reinforcement, you know, to use the psychological term. We do need to enforce what we've taught them to do. And when they do it, high fives, man. Nucks. Blow it up. You know, whatever. It's something that shows them that you're proud of them. If there's one thing that, that, that I, I desire more than anything to hear from my dad, it's, I'm proud of you good job. It just means the world. It sets you up. You know, you, you want to do it again. You're like, that was great. I want another high five. You know, even if it is the goofy, like we messed it up because it was the first time we ever did it. You know, we, he went in for nucks and I went in for the high five. It was awkward, a little side man hug or whatever. And gosh, dad stinks. And then we move on, you know, whatever. Everybody's got their thing, right? But he says, fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. Bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. So then he moves on to another relationship. He talks about bond servants. And bond slaves are actually spoken about in Exodus 21. And basically what it was is a provision for someone who got into debt. Now, debt is not a new thing. It's something that happened and, and God set it up so that those who were in debt had a way to get out of debt. And it wasn't the government. It was through their brothers and sisters the people that were Israelites. And they weren't to charge each other interest. They, weren't, they were supposed to provide for each other. And one of the ways that he did that was through a relationship called a, a servant or a servitude. And it talks about it in Exodus chapter 21, 1 through 6. He says, These are the judgments, and it was the first thing he told them, you shall set before them, speaking to Moses. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, then he should go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will no, not go out free, then his master shall bring him to the judges he shall also bring him to the door of the house, and his master shall take, uh, pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. So what they would do is if somebody came into debt and they could not pay their debt, then what they could do is they could sell themselves as a, as a slave in exchange for work the, the slave owner would pay the person's debt and in order to pay off his debt to his slave owner, his master, he would work for them for six years. And during that time, he was theirs. He lived there, everything. But after six years, they couldn't keep him forever. They had to let them go free. They had the option, you're fa footloose and fancy free, you're done. Your debt is paid. So what would happen is that people many times would fall into debt, they'd go into slavery, 
They pay off the debt, they come back out, and they would go into debt again. They didn't change anything because they never learned anything. And so sometimes, sometimes it was that case, and sometimes for other reasons, the, the servant would say, you know what? I didn't, I've had it better at my master's house than I ever did working and trying to live on my own. I don't know how to manage the books. I don't know how to keep food on the table. I always had those things at my master's house. Hey, can I stay here? And so he had the option at that point to become no longer a slave because of debt, but now a free will slave. I'm here because I want to be. And so he would come back in. He'd say, hey, I know I can leave, but I kind of like it here. My wife's here. we got a place to stay. got a roof over our head. I really like you. Many times they would really like the person they were working for. And they were like, can I just stay here? And at that point, he could say, yeah. I'd love to keep you as a, a free will slave. And so what he would do is he would take them to the judges. It would be made official. They'd notarize it or whatever. And then they would go to the doorpost. He'd put his ear up there, take an awl, drive it through his ear, and they would put a gold ring on there. And that would signify to everyone else in the community that I'm a free will slave to this man or this, this family or whatever. And it would be forever. Basically, until he passed, he was a free will slave to this man. So in this case, in Ephesians, he's talking to a culture where there were thousands and tens of thousands of slaves in the Roman Empire. More people were slaves than were not. And so when he's writing to them, he's writing to them because, hey, uh, we, we got saved. We're going to church now, but, but here's the deal. Like, we're, we're following Jesus. We're believers in Christ. What does that mean for our, our, our slavery? Like, how do we deal with that? Are we, are we free now? Or do we need to stay in these relationships? How do we interact with the people around us? And so what Paul writes is bondservants, you're still bondservants. He says, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. Those people that God has providentially placed over you with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart. What sincerity means is with singleness of heart, with one focus. He says this, and I, I highlighted it in my Bible. He says, as to Christ. So this is a principle I think we can draw out from this particular text and go to the other ones. Serve and, and love your wife, love your husband, respect your husband as to Christ. They don't deserve it, but you're serving the Lord Jesus. And so in your relationship with your wife, with your husband, with um, your children, uh, with your father and your mother, and all of those things, serve them and live with them with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ, as an act of worship. Not with eye servants as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Now, you know what I'm talking about when I say men pleasers, more than likely. Because here's the temptation. You get to work, you know what you're supposed to be doing, but you kind of get, you, know, you, you go gung-ho, it's a new job, at least this is my experience, maybe it's not yours. You go gung-ho, it's a new job, your boss, you know, his office is down the hall, and, and all of a sudden you're learning things like what his footsteps sound like. Or you learn about what time he swings by the job site. Or you learn kind of what he pays attention to and what he doesn't, or she. And so you, you work really hard when they're around, but when they're not, you're like, hey man, go check out the Facebook. You know, and, and, and there's all these patterns and habits that kind of come in. But what does he say here? He says, serve 
your masters according to the flesh, your earthly masters, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, to please Christ, not with eye service, not just so when they're looking, you're working hard, not as men pleasers, those who try to please people, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. The will is willing to work even when the boss isn't watching. He says, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. So to the person that works for somebody. Now, the bond slave, we can't really relate to. I don't know too many of you that know bond slaves. But many of us have debts that we're paying off, and many times we have no way to pay it off unless we have a J-O-B. So in some ways, we're bond slaves to our bosses. We are there because we need to be there, but we're also there as a choice. You can leave that thing anytime you want. Now, you may not do well financially if you leave that job, right? But many times we go, well, I just can't, I just got to, I have to work for the man. No, you don't. No, you don't. You can go anytime you want. Let, you know, shoot yourself out the door. But, but the reality is, is then you won't be able to pay your bills. Then you won't be able to support your family. And there's all these other implications. And so uh, now those are all things you choose to do, and some of them are not. There are things we have to pay for that we don't choose to, but they're part of living in this world. We've got to have food on the table, otherwise we starve. We've got to have clothes on our body, otherwise it's awkward for everyone. You know? But also, I mean, you'll, you'll get sick because of exposure. And so there's all these practical things, but he says, we serve our masters, but we've got to be careful. Don't serve our masters just because someone's looking. This is another area that God wants you to worship and be obedient in. Serve your master because you serve Christ. Christians, we ought to be the best employees anybody can hire. Because they don't have to pay nobody to watch us. They still might, but they shouldn't have to. Because anything that you're doing, Jesus is sitting there right with you. Anything you're doing, Jesus is there with you, watching you all the time. Not because he's making a list and checking it twice. He's doing it because he's God with us. He's with us wherever we go. He's keeping us accountable. He sends brothers and sisters in Christ to work with us, to jab us a little bit and encourage us in the same way. Work as unto the Lord. And then he says, you masters, do the same things to them. Giving up threatening. Now he's writing to a culture that had all these Roman soldiers that would threaten people and say, hey, if you don't do your job, I'm going to kill you. And they could do that legally. He says, don't threaten them. Know that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. He doesn't treat anyone unequally. He treats everybody with the same um, standard. So then he says in verse 10, I didn't go into the master's thing a whole lot, but my point with that is just do the same thing. Treat them as you would like to be treated. If you're a boss, if you're an authority over anybody, treat them like you would want to be treated. And then he says, finally, verse 10, My brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Here's what Satan wants to do. Here's what he wants to do. We're going to talk about this more next week, but I'm going to close up with this thought. What Satan wants to do is he wants you to know that you're saved, but he also wants you to completely fail at relationships, thinking that they don't matter. What does it matter how I get along with my wife or not? Because your wife and your relationship as a man 
is an example of Christ's love for the church. That's why. That's why it matters. What does it matter if I work hard when my boss is looking and not when he's not? Because it's your witness of who you really believe in. If you work hard even when your boss isn't looking, it proves the reality of Jesus in your life. That you know you're accountable to him when no one else is looking. What does it matter if I'm a boss and I'm kind of rough with my employees? Because if those employees don't know Jesus and everybody that watches that situation, they will not see Jesus' lordship over your life. Because everybody looks at bosses and goes, well, it's easy for them. They're not accountable to anybody. They're all accountable to somebody. But if they're man-pleasers, then they're going to treat you harshly when their boss isn't looking. So he's telling bosses the same thing. Don't, don't serve your boss. Everybody's subservient to somebody, is my point. And so he says, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. This is not an easy task to undertake, but the reality is, is Satan wants to defeat your witness by your relationships. And if we as Christians do not treat relationships in the proper way and do them his way, then what happens is it gives the enemies of the Lord cause to blaspheme. I cannot tell you how many people I've talked to who are very, very strong in the LGBT agenda, and they go, hey, what does it matter if homosexuals get married or not? Christians get married and divorced constantly. And they're right. They've given the, we've given the enemies of the Lord cause to blaspheme because of our own unwillingness to submit to God's direction for marriage. And so that's just one example. And so let me ask you, how many more examples can you think of? The Lord wants to show himself powerful and mighty. And if he can't simply, by you trusting him and obeying him, show the world that he exists and that the reality of his relationship with you changes the way you interact with other people, then how in the world can he save their soul? It looks like his arm is too short that he cannot save. If he can't reconcile our physical and personal relationships, what do you, why, why would people think that he could reconcile our relationship with him uh, by dealing with our sin and, and causing it to be washed away white as snow? The physical reality proves the spiritual reality. And so let's pray. Father, we uh, are humbled by this teaching because um, we recognize through this passage that our human relationships with other people matter way more than we probably often give them credit. And so, Father, I pray for each one of us, myself included, that if there are any areas in our lives where we have not been obedient to you in the way that we serve our masters, in the way that we train and raise up our children, in the way that we honor and obey our parents in the Lord, in the way that we interact with our spouses, Lord, um, cause us to repent change our hearts. Help us no longer to try to do those things because we want to please our our spouse or our master, our boss, or anyone else. Lord, help us to live in sincerity as unto you alone. May we live for an audience of one. May we have a, a singleness of heart that wants to please our Father who is in heaven, who sees all things. And Father, may we do that as unto you And may it cause others to see the greatness and the glory and the otherness of Jesus. Father, may we be, just like the Israelites, we're always supposed to be a nation 
a group of people that you've set apart and called to bring glory to your name in how we live life. Lord, change us. Transform us. Give us the ability to live as we're called. And Father, help us to fight the good fight, not to grow weary in that well-doing, but to know that, that, you, that which you've called us to do, you will also give us the power to do it as we submit our will to you to be obedient. So Father, we love you. We thank you. And we ask, Lord, that you would be glorified in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen.